Business is basically four phases, set up, run, grow, sell. I love failure. Like my mantra that I teach my kids is do fail, learn and pivot until you hit your goals. The amount of money you put into it and how often you buy into it and what you buy should be proportional to the amount of knowledge you have in it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Now, today's guest, he was an ex-RAF pilot that left to become a full-time trader for the last 17 years. He's completely self-taught, impatient. He quickly lost quite a lot of money along the way. Eventually, though, learning from his mistakes, trading became quite profitable for him. In his mid-20s, he began to excel at trading and investing. He was able to earn seven figures from trading, not selling courses or any of that kind of stuff. He made £426,000 in a few hours on Black Monday in 2018 and generates over 10,000% ROI on his crypto portfolio. So he knows a thing or two about investing. He's one of the world's leading authorities on how to safely invest in cryptocurrencies. He runs the Realistic Trader, home to the world's best crypto investing course for beginners with a community of followers around the globe. He's an awesome speaker. And I guarantee you, if you listen and pay really close attention to what he says today in our interview, you will take a lot from it. So let's cue the music for CM Kid. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Right, Siam, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. Thanks for having me. You drove three and a half hours to be here. Yeah, it takes forever to drive anywhere from Norwich. There's speed cameras along the whole way now, so... (laughs) So just give everyone context, Norwich is in... um, Arse end of nowhere. Kind of like, yeah, it's it's one of those places in the middle of nowhere. It's it's not attached to anything, so come all the way down. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Okay, this audience in the Middle East that that listen to this content on a regular basis won't know who you are. So what I'd like them, first of all, to do, okay, is for them to be going, who the F is that? And you said, let me tell you who I am. So please introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Um, Well, as I said earlier, I I personally believe I'm a nobody from Norwich. I am literally just a bloke. Um, I used to be... Uh, an Air Force pilot, uh, not for long, about eight years or so. And then uh, got, well, I've been trading since I was 18. So I've been trading for about 19 years now. And the first six years of my trading, I was probably the worst trader on the planet. I had this, I had no money management. I was basically, my Air Force income was like £2,200 take home a month. I'd blow 200 quid in the bar every month. 
And, you know, a pint of beer back then was like 50p in the officer's mess. How old are you? I'm 37. You look like you're 22. Uh, <laughs> no, I've got, I've got my grey hair. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I used to blow two grand a month, every month on the markets. Some days, sometimes it would, that two grand would last a day. And then as I got better, it would last a week and then a month. And yeah, so basically for four to six years, I was just a degenerate gambler, basically. But I saw other people doing it and being cocky, you know, and arrogant and thought, oh, I could fly a military aircraft. Everything in life is going to be easy. God, no. Mother market will humble any, anyone, anyone that disrespects it um, or, yeah, underestimates it. And, uh, and what then, were you trading? Uh, currencies, so FX. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, after about year six, I started actually making money. And then I was like, shit, I need to leave the Air Force. Um, there, there's one pivotal year I remember that where I'd rich, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad for mm-hmm. the first time. And there was this station commander pep talks. Every year, the station commander would get all the junior pilots in and go, you know, if you do well, one day you'll be in my boots, etc. And I was like, what was the, what's the station on? And we asked, I was in the back row, and we asked all our, our friends. And turns out, apparently, um, back then, probably changed now, that, that person earned about 80 grand a year. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to work another 30 odd years to maybe become a station commander. And I, I my training was doing better at that point. And I thought, I want 80 grand a month, not a year. And I want it, you know, within a relatively short time frame so I then realized that um two big face laps uh one I I was a good trader back at that point pretty much and I could consistently grow an account by 10 to 20 percent per year which I, is, is not bad but the problem I had is I had very low capital I had probably 50 grand to my name at that point and 10 to 20 grand uh, percent per year on a 50k account is going to take a long time to hit the, the monetary t- targets I had uh, in my head. And so I'm a big fan of first principle thinking. And uh, thankfully, Elon Musk has now sort of made that much more aware. But um, And I was thinking, right, right, what is the most logically efficient way to get to my monetary targets? And I, and I realized I had the skill, I just didn't have the capital. So then I was like scouring the globe for every asset class there was. And I was, and I was thinking, what how can I get there? And there's two things. One thing I, I've, I learned very early on is that the real inflation figure is actually um, the US M2 currency supply. So currency expansion, whatever the rate that was, that was basically real inflation. And we can go on to that in, in a bit. And I realized that the, the, the global monetary hurdle is 15%. And if you're not making 15% per year, you're, you're, you're losing money. And I, realized, and I was like, geez, okay, so what on the planet makes 15% or more? And the CAGA targets I had in my head, I actually needed to hit 50%. Um, and the only thing I found was business. Business was literally the only thing that, if you if you got the hang of it, would do more than 50% per year. So I was like, okay, I need to get into business, try and do the business cycle. And again, I approached business in what I thought was a logical way. I was like, if I was an alien visiting Earth, what? how would I set up a business? You know, ignore all the you know societal norms and biases. And I realized business is basically four phases, set up, run, grow, sell. And then when you analyze the world of business over thousands of years, the everything has a standard distribution. Um, and most businesses don't do that. They set up, run, 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 run forever, and then maybe die with a silent whimper. And so I was like, okay, I need to master the 
the setup run grow sell thing. And so the first, I don't know, two or three businesses I set up literally did nothing because I was an idiot. I didn't know anything. And um, one of my, um, I, I found a mentor back back in the day, a guy called John Davy. Uh, he's a guy that you should definitely have on here. He's um, he set, I think, so he created John Glue's co- comedy club. John Davy. Yeah. So he John's set, one of my friends. John Davy. Yeah. Marissa's husband. Yes, Marissa. Yeah, yeah. I love John. So Marissa Peer's Marissa Peer's husband is John Davy. Yes, John's, exactly. John's one of my friends. Yeah, and he's helped Mar- Marissa Peer boom with, with uh, RTT. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so I love John and Marissa. And one thing he said to me probably a decade ago, he was like, just do the five to nine game. And I was like, what's that? Thinking it was about a job or whatever. He's like, no, set up, run, grow, sell a business for five figures. Then do it again, sell it for six figures. Then do another one, sell it for seven, eight, nine. And I was like, wow, you need a lot more skills if you're then going to sell a business for seven or eight figures. Yeah. Um, And I think the key thing is to not become emotionally connected to your baby, precious baby business, or like everyone is. Um, You have to treat it like, okay, you, your your business is the product and you have one customer, which is the person or entity that buys your business. Um, so, yeah, I just got into business with the and the people that And the, so the people then that, because a lot of people would be interested in this. Okay. Because you're, you're right. Everybody starts, or anybody that does start a business, yeah. invariably gets the first one wrong. But when they, they go again, it, it, it becomes literally a way of life. It becomes, they, they eat, sleep and breathe. It becomes something they care about with yeah. greatly. But they don't think about the exit. They choke their business with love. That's what always happens. They choke their business yeah. with love. What a great statement. Yeah, yeah they, they mollycoddle it to, to death, basically. And they'll never sell it. And they'll, they'll, the whole business will be them-centric, which then in turn makes their business completely unsellable. Um, it, most of the time, it's unautomated. You know, they won't have standard operating procedures. They won't trust anyone with anything because no one will do it as good as I can. Is yeah. that the one-man band, or is that yeah. the, the ten employees as well? That that's no, that stage, uh, or the couple of million turnover companies too? No, I, I think you sort of exit that sort of mollycoddling phase when you have about six staff plus, because by then you 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 if you've got a business that can maintain six staff, you're you're going to be doing six-figure revenue at least, and therefore you would have matured as a business owner at that point, and you will be forced to hand over stuff. You'll need head of product or head of sales or marketing or whatever. You can't do everything yourself. Organisational chart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I prefer accountability <clears throat> spheres. Um, but it's sort of inverted. You like As the director or CEO, you are the bottom of that shit filter. So um, businesses are basically massive funnels for shit and they attract just shit, obviously. And it will go through several layers. So, you know, the, the gate, the, the first gatekeepers like receptionists or, you know, whatever. And if there's crap coming in that they can't solve, it goes to their line manager, etc. to the point where no one in your organization can deal with the crap that's just landed on, on the desk and only you can deal with it. Um, so really, you are, as a director, you are chief shit dealer. And also, you, like, you should all only be doing things that a director should do, which is, JVs, you know, new products, new markets to go into and exiting mm-hmm. or money raising and exiting. But let's let's talk about that for a second because a, a lot of people in uh, a lot of people in business think about selling, but then lots don't think about selling. Mm. There there might be the I don't know who would ever buy this. I wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And then there's the people who think about selling but don't know what the process is. Yeah. Now, so John Duffield, who used to own, used to asset management and was Jupiter before. 
I, I had dinner with him one night, many years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And he sat down, he said, you've got two choices. He said, you take the money off the table every year or you build it to exit. They're your two choices. Simple as that. He says, if you want to take the money off the table every year, <coughs> that's absolutely fine. Yep. He said, take it off, keep that business running. He said, but if you want to exit, it goes, you have to start off thinking, who's going to buy this? And how am I then going to make, make, make uh, all of my effort to get to know all of those potential buyers way in advance of me selling it? So I can build relationships with those people so that when that time does come, okay, we're, we're aligned. Exactly. Make sense? Yeah. And so that was really great advice that he gave me all those years yeah. ago because I sat there. And so then I went through a stage of going, I don't want to exit. And I just took money off the table every yeah. year. So I went to this program. <laughs> and then he used that money to do other things with, yeah. you know, other businesses, mm. investments, etc. But now I'm in, in a situation where I've got a group of companies. Yeah. And it's just like, right, we're going to exit. Who's going to buy our company? Yeah. And so we're now looking and it's obviously it's banks or insurance companies in my space. Yeah. So who do we need to know? You know, exactly. who do we need to know? Who do we need to build the relationship with? So and, on and that, the podcast is a, a, an amazing vehicle to get your network. This, your you know, this, this is so funny. You know, I was talking, <laughs> this is what I preach. Okay. So I, uh, lots of people want a podcast. Yeah. Okay. Uh, less start a podcast. Okay. And most don't keep it going. Yeah, that's the hard bit. Now, I'm 260 odd episodes in, so I, I think I've passed that thing. Most people don't get past 20 episodes. Yeah. Okay, I think 12 is the average. It's too much time, too much effort, yeah. too much effort. But let's say, okay, I wanted, a bit, I wanted to sell my company. I would interview on my podcast every single week, exactly. every CEO of every company that I thought <laughs> might be interested or could be interested or yeah. might be a partner for my business. Exactly. I then have an hour and a half of building that relationship with them, <laughs> getting to know them, okay, building some rapport. Yep. And then I can then at any time in the future, so let's say three weeks down the road, I can pick the phone up, call them and say, just want you to know, about a, everyone loves the episode. They really enjoyed it. I've got a couple of questions. Can I buy a coffee? Yeah. And they will always say, Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And so the, the, what, what a great way of prospecting to find, exactly. you know, because when you start off on the journey of, of, of trying to sell a business, yeah. you, what do you do? Oh, hold on a minute. There's people called VCs. There's private equity. <laughs> yeah. There's there's angel investors. Where, where do I find these people? Yeah. You know, and, and it is hard because people don't know where to start. Yeah. The people that live in that world, like everybody in their own world, are like, Cool, it's easy. It's just yeah. it's John here and Phil there. <laughs> yeah. Talk to them, you know. Yeah. But when you're not in that world, you know, just like you and Scary. I, you, know, you and I, we, I don't know. Let's say we wanted to open an optometrist. It's <laughs> like, <"What?"> yeah. <laughs> who makes glasses? What do yeah. we do? You know, <laughs> can't yeah. even spell it. <laughs> exactly. Okay, sorry yeah. for interrupting. No, no, it's good. It just reminded me of a sort of a different thing that I used to do to buy businesses. So. One of my favorite method, um, methods when wanting to get into a new sector to, is I would, um, I haven't done it in years, but I, I'd have these uh, dinners. So, for example, I was looking at buying a marketing company about four or five years ago. And so back then I could go to Experian, buy a massive list of um, marketing companies within a certain niche and amount of revenue and employees, etc. And I would buy like 3,000 contacts and I would send a letter um, out to all 3,000 of them. And the letter would be something like, hey, my name is Simon. I've got a pot of money and I'm looking to get into um, a, a recruitment a marketing company within this niche. I only have the time and money capacity to buy one, maybe two, because um, I want to go, you know, put a lot of effort into it. Um, I found you by, I literally bought a list and I'm sending this identical letter to 3,000 other people. 
And what I'd love to do is I've booked the penthouse suite at the something is a Hampshire hotel overlooking Leicester Square. So I, I used to do it at the top floor there. And I've got this lovely five course dinner and I'm inviting open invite to any anyone that wants to come and one of you know this 3000. Um, oh, but there's a 25 spot max capacity in, in that penthouse dinner room. Um, so if you want to come, please just uh, email my PA with uh, all these details. Um, best case, uh, worst case scenario, you have a nice meal and you get to meet all of your competitors in person. Best case scenario, we can maybe see if there's win-win. Um, and also please uh, pop in your uh, uh, last year accounts with my PA just to for, you know, get rid of tire kickers. And then normally you'd we'd get like, I don't know, 30 people say, yeah, I'm in up for it. Uh, 10 companies won't do that first filter and sending their last year's accounts, whatever. And um, so you'd get, yeah, probably 20 say, yeah, I'm coming. And then always last minute, probably 50% no show rate. Really? Yeah. So you always end up with like 20 yays and then probably eight to 10 actually turn up. And then what I used, to, which I, I, I used to really just enjoy it because during starters, we do intros. So I'd be like, right, one minute around the room, bit like old school BNI, like, who are you? What do you do? What do you do for fun? And a silly fact about yourself. And it was always like, hey, my name's John. I have this marketing company in this niche and we do blah and whatever fact. I was like, hey, my name's Dave. I have an identical business to that one. And the, around the whole room, like same business, same business. Yeah. So then, yeah, you do a presentation over main course to say, hey, this is me. I've got no, nothing. Literally, literally lift up your skirt tell the truth and then Q and a over dessert. And then next steps is if, if you're interested, let's have dinner with your significant advisors, which is normally wife, accountant, lawyer, whatever. And then, uh, yeah, I found that it's really great. And byproduct, just like you're doing with, um, these podcasts is that you make friends, even if you don't do deals. So I've still got good mates in the whole marketing world. And mm. so, and I guess you could probably reverse engineer that to do exits. Maybe for, I don't know. Hold you? investment dinners with why not whatever yeah why not so, interesting interesting did that. yeah sorry a bit of a random tangent. I don't think I don't think there is I think that's actually really you know again who who goes and does something like that I don't know how many people will uh, start a podcast on the back of this idea that I spoke about or do those dinners yeah. there's only a small percentage that will take action exactly. so I look at the camera right now you one of these people that's going to take action or not okay I'm looking right at you so you tell me um, okay so. You got yourself into this world of trying to understand more and more and more. Business was the way, yeah. the area you were going to make the cash. You're like, okay, right, how yeah. do I build these businesses? And then, then you learn about how to how you build, you learn about how you exit by trial and error, which I like. More okay. error than anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Error and error. Um, yeah. And that, 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 that gave you... If you're intelligent enough, that gives you plenty of examples of don't put your hand on, on, the, on the stove. Yeah, uh, exactly. examples. Yeah, yeah. So what happened next? Just error after error. Honestly, some people say I'm successful, but I literally, I'm every time I look in the mirror, I all I see is raging failure. But my, <laughs> but really, yeah. But the thing is, that's you have, interesting. Like I think everyone mentally or internally has their own personal thermostat on every aspect of life. So, for example. I've got accustomed to a way of life, the way I live. And so my monetary, let's say my monetary thermostat is here, right? So if I ever have bad times and all of a sudden I'm now rock poor or whatever, I wouldn't do anything but hustle and bustle and just I would 
work 18 hour days until I just got back to my base level. And then if you do well, you, you know, you, you're doing better. You're, you self-acclimatize to that new monetary level. And it, it's not just money. It could be fitness or whatever. Like I'm happy being how I am. I have no need or desire to become fully jacked or, you know, mm-hmm. become a big bodybuilder. But it's because my, th- my physical thermostat is there. Mm-hmm. Everyone has all these thermostats. So for me, I love failure. Like my mantra that I teach my kids is do fail, learn and pivot until you hit your goals. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point that they they just, every time they want to quit, they're like, what's our mantra? And they're like, <laughs> <laughs> do fail, learn, pivot. Um, so yeah, I mean, and the thing with, with that five to nine game, you, you go through so many areas. So if you fail, you've got to fail fast. Most people, one, they don't like failing. So they'll do everything possible. So they never put themselves in a position where they can fail. And those that do actually go out and do something, when they fail, they drag that failure out for as long as they can, which is bad. You learn nothing. That's because uh, a couple of issues. So an issue that you spoke about a minute ago with the, with your thermostat, it's um, your standards. Yeah, okay? standards. Uh, right. the, 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 the failing is not the failing itself, it's the shame. Yeah. Okay. Because they worry about what other people think. They worry about what their their local community, that could be their direct family, that could be, you know, their mates at the football club. You know, he was driving around in the Aston Martin and now he's not. He's a failure. Okay. And then it's the shame on that rather than he was, because they don't understand business. Exactly. That person's worried about what other people think. When you get to a place, my mum used to say to me when I was a kid, what you think about me is none of my business say it. And I'd, I'd like, what you think about me is none of my business. Mm. Okay, say it again. What you think about me is none of my business. Say it again. What Amazing. you think about me. And so my mum made me say that over and over and over and over again. So I got to the place where I don't care yeah, what you think about me. Now, now I'm, I have relative success. When I was younger, okay, there was an aspect of my ego that cared. Yeah. Okay. When I, you're 30 what? 37. 37. So a bit younger than you. I, I had that. The age I'm at now, I really don't care. Yeah. You know, and good examples of that are, are actual experiences in life. So uh, your fancy Aston Martin that's parked outside, I've had all of those cars too. <laughs> change them every six months, lost yeah, yeah. a fortune every time I yeah. change them, blah, blah, blah. I have had a Range Rover for 10 years. Yeah. And my wife keeps saying, can you please go and get the new one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no. I've got a 2013 Sport as okay. well. Okay, yeah. so 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 my, <laughs> yeah. my Range Rover is 2013. Yeah, it's just a Vogue. It's the big one. Yeah. Um, it's got it's got it's not quite, but it's nearly at 200,000 kilometers. Amazing. And um, I had one issue with the engine that was sorted out and fixed. It runs better now than it did before. Just one issue. Just one issue. <laughs> and and I and I kid you not. Okay, yeah. I'm willing that car to last another 200. Yeah. And it's almost like there's a defiance in me yeah. that says, no, that it's got a supercharged engine. It's quick. It's, yeah, yeah. it's big. It's spacey. Petrol costs nothing in Dubai. The air conditioning, because <laughs> this is the most important thing in Dubai, the air conditioning works really well. Okay. And, it, and, and I'm like, I will not, I will not get a new car. Now, all of the people that I know that are much younger than me, that are doing well for themselves in different ways, I see the Rolls Royces and I see the Ferraris, all that kind of stuff going on. (laughs) And I I laugh at them because I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, that would change. (laughs) I hope anyway. And it's like not caring what other people think, you know, being in a position where if your business does that. So I started a a sales training company. It's called Make It Happen. 
And I built an online course, 400 videos, A to Z of sales training, everything yeah. you need to be. I launched it in 2016 or 17. And the first month, 960 people signed up. At a thousand pounds each. Jesus. I thought I was God. <laughs> I, I thought I was Mr. Internet. Billy Big Balls. Yeah. I was like, you know nothing. <laughs> come to me. Come, come, talk to me and let me give you my wisdom about how you how you sell online courses. The second month, I think we sold 37. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it fell off a clip. <clears throat> now, as time went by, okay, I was the, the money in that business is actually in corporate training. So you go into companies and you train the companies. Now, I'm a sales guy, okay? When I'm training other people's, uh, uh, other people's staff and their company's paying for it, they don't have to be engaged. Sure. They don't have to show up and they don't have to do the homework and take the action. So I learned very quickly that because they're not my people, yeah. it got a little bit boring. Interesting. So what, what could I do? I, I was, social media had me as Mr. Make It Happen. Social media yeah, yeah. was like, you know, the, the, all, my, all my content was about sales, sales, sales. And I was just, as time was going on, I'm like, I don't like this. I don't enjoy it. I don't yeah, do it. Yeah. Now, what could I do? I, could I have kept it going? Yeah. yeah. Could, I, could have kept it going. and could have spent a day a week doing that kind of stuff. But I just got so fed up with it. That I was like, do I really want this as part of my life? Mm. And I just dropped it. Nice. And when I, when I dropped it, I was relief. Yeah. I didn't have to give any more time to it. Now, do people still buy the course occasionally? Like, yes, there, you can have it. And yeah. the people that bought it before the companies, that like lifetime access, fine, I don't yeah, care. Yeah. It doesn't cost me anything. Yeah. But I don't want to, I, I realized I didn't want to be a sales trainer. That's a skill in itself, by the way, being able to drop stuff. Most mm. people don't. No, that's right, they don't. You know, and everyone says, you're so good at sales. I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to teach people in sales. But it helped me use social media. Yeah. So it helped me make content. So, it, okay, there's some confusion when it was switched from one to another, but helped me make content. So I think that a lot of people, they have a persona that they think the world needs to see and they're frightened of that persona changing mm. unless it's a persona of more yep. or greater. Sorry, I'm interjected. No, it's good. So when you look at, when you look, because I'm really interested in this, when you look at the, the challenges that you faced, what was, what was the biggest, the one that, the one that kind of made you feel the most? Oh, I have a chronic challenge of shiny object syndrome. <laughs> I, I still have not harnessed or got rid of that, that flaw in me. I, I, I cannot curb it. So I, I, <laughs> the problem is I, I end up spinning way too many plates. I mean, there was like, a two-year period, I bought 15 companies. And, I mean, uh, I mean, that was probably the most idiotic thing I've ever done. And as a result, I had zero time, attention, or focus on any of them. And they pretty much most of them did, or one, it was, it was a tough sector anyway, because I was buying distressed businesses. And distressed businesses are buggered for a reason. Mm -hmm. They're effed up. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I can or can't say on the podcast, but yeah. You can do an F-bomb <laughs> if it's needed. Yeah. And so not only was I chomping off way too much that I could buy, I was buying basket cases of businesses. And so I, literally, I just, you know, after a period of time, I mean, I'm still suffering business indigestion from back then in what, like 2016? Really? Still. Um, and yeah, so I, I long for the days where I have just one business. 
I, it's my ongoing going quote to my wife. And I'm like, I can't wait till we have one business. So I'm in a multi-year process. I'm just taking a big samurai sword to the group and I'm cutting, selling everything at the moment. And I just want one business. But even though I say that, with what's happening in the world right now, I wake up most weeks with a brand new business idea going, oh, that would be so good. And so, and because we have a team in place and I've got some really awesome people that are super capable, I can now basically farm out most of the tasks in setting up new businesses and whatnot. That it's hard. Like with that magpie syndrome, we're like, oh, this business, there's an opportunity here. So it's a, it's an ever going struggle. But I think I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm slowly coming up with coping mechanisms. So what I find, especially with trading, trading, um, amplifies all of your the worst flaws in you and so you always end up with loads of coping mechanisms so my one of the business coping mechanisms I, i'm building or been doing it for a few years now is that you have to segment the types of businesses in your life so i've i've got three main groups so you have your boutique lifestyle uh, group your growth group and your enabler group you don't have to but it's just what i like doing so you the boot Boutique lifestyle business um, a group are for businesses that you're just going to have as cash cows. No plan on selling them. They're just, they're paying your bills. That's your income. And that means you don't have to take silly risks or you don't have to like do reckless stuff because you know you've got these lovely businesses that are just bringing in cash. So that's your bread and butter stuff. The growth group is stuff where, right, I'm going to set up, run, grow, sell and have do it in under five years. Aim for a three-year exit. But most likely, everything takes longer than you think. So it's probably going to be five years. And if you haven't hit your targets within five years, you're doing something wrong or the world itself has changed. Things are moving way faster now. So that's that's a growth group. So you have a whole bunch of businesses there that you set up. And then that's just to exit. Um, going through all the MA stuff, like, you know, really targeting who's going to buy. And then the enabler group. This is a group where I'm actually the most excited about. And... I don't give a shit about the EBITDA or, uh, or or exiting because I'm one of those crazy lunatics that believe I'm going to live several hundred years. Not in an organ- or organic format, but if you listen to people like Ray Kurzweil, so Ray Kurzweil has an 86% accuracy with predicting the future, has done since the 80s and 90s, and nearly everything he said has come true and the ones that he says that he missed, he was only out by a couple of years. So like one of the things he was talking about it was the singularity. So obviously that's the physics term, um, you know, because what past the event horizon, you have no idea what happens. And he was saying that the moment we have AGI, that is the singularity. So he's the guy that coined the term singularity, but for AI. Um, AGI just makes sure uh, Artificial that. general intelligence. So mm-hmm. when you have a, a, an AI which has the same... Um, computational ability as all humanity combined, basically. So a robot or a computer that is as clever as humans as as a whole. And that is the singularity because when you look at the intelligent staircase, the moment we have an AGI, let's say we do it on at, you know, midday on a Monday. At 12.01, that AGI is now one step above us on the intelligent staircase. By Friday, it's created its own language. It's doing things that it will take humans thousands of years to even understand what it's doing. And for all intents and purposes, it's become a, a you just created a god, basically. Going back to Kurzweil, he said that AGI, that singularity, will be in 2050. 
Then you revise it, 2035. He's now saying 2029. So, but the crazy thing is, before, long before we even get AGI, we will have the ability before 2030 or before 2029 where we will be able to upload a, like a, a version of yourself onto the cloud. So obviously I'm not going to go into the whole soul and spiritual type stuff. You'll be able to upload your mind, let's say, to the cloud. That then just opens up a whole can of worms of what can, ha can and can't happen. So I'm looking at this from first principles point of view, going back to my groups. I'm going, right, let's just say, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a non-zero probability. So let's say he is correct and loads of other prominent people like Elon, et cetera. They all say this is going to happen. Mo mm, Gaudet. Yeah. Um, like you, yeah, your organic vessel may deteriorate over time. I mean, we've got CRISPR coming along, so that's probably going to kick the can down the road a bit. But your, let's say, digital Siam is going to be here for hundreds of years. What am I going to be doing for hundreds of years? Well, hopefully I'm going to be doing some cool stuff. Like I want to build loads of green projects and all that sort of stuff. But in a nutshell, I'll be in business. I'll trade to the day I die or get deleted. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be in business because the only way you achieve things in like real things in the real world is in business, really. NGOs don't really make much of a difference these days. Mm -hmm. All real innovations, revolutions, etc., they come from business owners. Elon, like, obviously you probably think I'm I'm an Elon fan. I, I am, just but it's all based by meritocracy. So my enabler group is if I'm going to be in business, what do I need? What what helps? So the goal is to have an accountancy firm, a law firm, an insolvency practitioner firm, an M&A firm, an investment firm, uh, tech, R&D, marketing, basically everything in business. But I want to own all of it. So then when I'm doing business or setting up business or buying or whatever, I can just parachute my enabler group and go, go. Or here is a new opportunity, a new thing, new tech, whatever, like construction 3D printing I want to get into. If I had my enabler group, I can then capitalize on that way faster than, yeah. So that was my little rant. I don't know what the question was, but I've gone <laughs> off on one. Yeah. So yeah. So you got you you set these three different parts up of business, yeah. So that you can you can essentially one is one is just so I'll summarize it. So so one there is just to produce cash flow so that the bills are paid and everyone yeah. carries on. So you have got your cash flow businesses, you have got your growth businesses, so your opportunities for exit, your enabler businesses, uh, shits and giggles. Shits and giggles. Yeah. Okay. And that, okay, there's three. Is it is it thirds though? Or is it 50% one, 25, 25? What's mm. the what's the what's the just rough roughly? In terms of what focus or money or no, no, I didn't care about your revenue. About 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 about, about where the focus, focus is. Huh. I've got 90% of my focus in the growth group, 5% in the enabler group, because there's no rush with that. That happens, it will just happen mm -hmm. by default. Like we've got a bunch of those companies already. And five percent in the in the boutique. Honestly, it's that shiny magpie, shiny object syndrome. I'm looking at the world right now. Everyone's seeing doom and gloom. And yes, in the very short term, and when I say very short term, over the next five years, there are there is a very high probability of absolute economic calamity about to unfold. But let's say three years plus, I am probably the most bullish person on everything humanity tech everything and it's all because of tech and like so hold on a minute. <clears throat> you believe that we're going to have an economic meltdown almost unavoidably tell me why so god how can i compress this there are obviously in in the world of finance as you know there are a billion different metrics 
And of those metrics, you can curve fit all sorts of things. Like, hell, you can get a chart up and have some fancy moving average crossover system. Go, oh, look, it worked here, here, here. But you've curve fitted. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in the future. And so the, I guess, again, this is coming from my trading side. You, you really have, you, when I'm placing a trade or an investment, you have probability and confidence. So you have two percentages. So what is the probability of a successful outcome in whatever move? And then how confident are you in that probability? So there's two percentages. It's that, it's that seesaw I'm always weighing up. And so when I look at the world of all the different metrics out there, what are the ones which have always worked? Not, not you know, you're not curve fitting and put it in a fancy light so it works just for your narrative, etc. You have to be completely neutral. Think like an alien. That's, that's my thing. I always look at anything I get into like an alien. Ignore the pre, you know, societal norms. Now, three of the, the, the leading indicators that have never broken are... Interest rates, unemployment rates, and um, interest rate, unemployment, and oh bloody hell, inflation. Inflation, yeah. So if you take, if you go to the Federal Reserve website, you, you, you can um, get. It's called the Fred. You can get a whole bunch of charts. So if you look at interest rates, every single time we've had uh, oil is also one of them. So every single time you've had a very sharp um, rise in rates it always leads to economic crash. But there's caveats here. When, when they pause rates, if they pause it for, say, six months, it actually causes a boom in stock markets, always. Yeah. When they then cut rates, that's when the crash begins. So you, it, it doesn't, on the outlook of it, it doesn't seem, seem to make sense. You, the, the thing is... That so the cost of borrowing has gone up? Okay, so interest yeah. rates have gone up, cost of borrowing has gone up. Yeah. That means it's now more expensive for businesses to exactly. borrow money. Then it plateaus, yep. stock market goes up. When they then bring the interest rates down, that's typically when the the, the calamity happens. Yeah, so in, <coughs> from an economic sense, there would be there would have been some trigger. Stuff is breaking down, like dot-com crash, subprime mortgage collapse, etc. And, you know, the, the velocity of money, so MV, um, starts dropping and so what do all governments and politicians do print 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 so they try and kickstart it like clear yeah and they do that they the a central bank only has two levers they have manipulate interest rates or press you know print, print. more money or not and what we found that they always floor both of them to the point you know if you go back to 08 they drop rates and they printed shit loads of money and the more they use it, the less effective it gets. So every single time they, you've seen that sharp drop in interest rates, within a 12-month period, you have a, a full-on recession, always. So that's that's one thing. And interest rates are going up right now? Yeah, they are. So, um, But they've gone up a lot, so arguably... The fastest rate in history. Yeah, in history. In so history. How there will come a time where that has to slow or, or pause. Yeah, I think any time from now to sort of before 2025, we, we're in for an economic crash. So, but this is just one metric. You, you should never just go put your whole investment thesis on just one metric. So that's just one thing. If I had charts or piece of paper, it would be good to just lay that there. You then look at unemployment rates. Now, I'm not going to go into U6 or how it's calculated. It's, it's all an utter lie how it's calculated. But let's just take their official figures. And you look at, you know, a 70-year chart of unemployment rates. Every single time official unemployment is at rock bottom, what happens? You have an economic crash, which is weird. Now, if you look at real rate, uh, real unemployment rates, like 
it's sky high. I mean, if you look at the amount of unemployed 25-year-olds or um, below, it's just ridiculous. But the thing is, they always change the way that they count someone. If you, like, if you've lost a job, you're not counted as unemployed because you're still looking for a job. And it's only after a period of time that, you know, like a year of not having a job, then you're classed as unemployed. But if you're unemployed for something like three or five years, you then go off the charts completely. You're like a terminal unemployed person. So they don't count you anymore. It's, yeah. But anyway, when you look at the charts and it's rock bottom, within a 12-month period, you always have a global crash or a US crash, let's say. Right now, we're the lowest in unemployment rates ever. Oh, uh, no, no, over the, since 1970, something like that. So look at the chart. Yeah. Lowest unemployment since 1970. Because we had really low unemployment for a long time, didn't mm-hmm. we? But it's, it's pretty e- much at its local lowest. lows. Yeah. So right now. So that's another thing. Then you look at um, inflation. So again, without going into it, when you have, again, not looking at the CPI lie or CPI, et cetera, when you have raging inflation, you then always, within, again, the 12-month period, you then have a crash. And also... There, so those three. Do metrics, any of those three have to can, can work independently? You're saying, or do you say based no. upon them all working together? So here's together? the crazy thing: they all work hand in hand. Okay. So you can get those three charts, put them all in top of each other, uh-huh. and everything I just said. Every single time you have that grey zone, which is on the on the Fred website, a recession, and there are other similar other things which actually add fuel to the fire. When you look at, if you then superimpose the oil ch- uh, price chart. It's, it's interesting. So we're in a position right now very much like the 70s where you had a massive oil shock. So oil prices went absolutely sky high and oil is like is, is the lifeblood of all countries, right? So the higher the oil prices go, every country has to um, spend more of their you know, budget on energy, basically, which then rages inflation. So rising oil prices is actually one of the, the main causes for obviously inflation going up, etc. But you, you again. You then have uh, big drops in oil price, and then yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I could go on, but it's hard without showing you the, the the charts. But when you look at all the these big factors, it always lead to to a crash. And the other thing um, is look at billionaires. What do they do? Not what they say. So if you look at most of the, even the prominent billionaires, Gates, Bezos. Elon Musk, etc. What do they do? They, what do nearly all of the, the the elite do before big crashes? They lay off staff like relentlessly. They borrow as much as possible at, at slash sell stock. Um, but yeah, more importantly, they they borrow as much as possible. Just look at what they're all doing. They're laying off. I think something like in the top twenty five. U.S. listed companies, something like over 250,000 people have been made redundant in the last 12 months. Um, loads of companies are borrowing as much as they can at slash selling stock. They're battling down the hatches, basically. They have better data than all of us. Um, yeah, I could go on. There's, so there's so, so, so when you take that into consideration, you'll always find there's opportunity. Oh, yeah. Okay, at a time like that, when there's blood on the streets, there's opportunity. Yeah. The average man on the street won't. No. Because you've got, a lot of the time you have momentum investors that are sitting there and they're like, you know, oh, that's been going well for the last two years. I'll have a piece of that. Yeah. And that's very interestingly, when you take a mutual fund, mm. nearly every mutual fund will report three months, six months, 12 months, year to day, and three and five years, yeah? Mm. And so the, they, they look, the, the, the naked eye looks at that performance and says, oh, well, if you, it's made 50% over five yeah. years, so that's 10% a year. That's not a bad one, which mm. is a really, really bad way of doing really it. Bad. But that's what people do. Do 
what do people do? How do they find the opportunities when there's blood on the streets? So let's say this economic crisis happens yeah. in, let's just say 12 months time for the sake of argument. Yeah. 12 months time, there's bloodshed for six months. Do we just hold our cash until such times that we go again? or It depends what segment of the public you're talking about. Because again, if you did that standard distribution model on the, let's say the UK public or US public, it's all going to be the same. Everything within two sigma of that bell curve, that's like 96% of the population, they are not in the position to capitalize on on all of these opportunities mm-hmm. that, may ha- that, that may happen, which is, I hate saying it, but it's a sad Fact, unfortunately, most that, which demonstrates even more how money management, cash flow management, money psychology, wealth psychology should be taught to kids at school. Oh God, yeah, it's just you know, that massive more, more, knowledge more so, gap. More so, more so than you know the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> I know, it's, but it's, it's, that, it's ridiculous. Yeah, at school, schools teach our our kids freaking useless stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I can't remember the last time I applied pretty much anything in. school from school into modern day life. Yeah, no, I mean, surely you're using trigonometry every day. <laughs> yes. Come on, you must be using it. You must be referring to the periodic table on a daily basis. Always, yeah. yeah. I bet you're absolutely clear on Magnesium yeah. River, aren't you? <laughs> like you've not, you not got a Bunsen burner at home? <laughs> no. What's happening to you? I mean, I used to be an Air Force pilot and everyone thinks, oh, you must be really good at maths. I promise you, you could take a thousand people around There's cameras right everywhere. Now. So wherever, yeah. you, wherever you are, you know, know. keep looking at my yeah, one. <laughs> He's looking at you. Um, <laughs> I'm probably the worst person at mental arithmetic you'll ever find. I'm terrible at math. Did you ever have passengers on your planes? Yeah, loads, yeah. Really? Did yeah. they know the, that? The uh, <laughs> <laughs> thing is with flying, you only need one equation, which is distance, speed, time calculations. But then you can, you know, for a short period of time, really hack those, um, that math. So you just, you know, it's... Um, so you get rough, with aviation, it's rough approximate numbers is really yeah, what you At need. the end of the day, you're working in, in a skill set and you've learned the skill set yeah, for that. So. But again, with trading, you don't really need maths either. Um, but yeah, school schools are massively kneecapping our kids' future potential mm-hmm. with the bollocks that they're teaching them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm getting on my high horse here. Unfortunately, the schooling system, you probably heard this loads. I mean, it hasn't changed in 200 years. Uh-huh. It's a massive sausage factory, basically. Uh-huh. So basically, you know, they're obsessed about all schools are obsessed about the grades and how they fare with against other schools, mm-hmm. and you know, get good grades, so you get you know, get into university to get a good degree to then get a good job, etc. But, and I'm not knocking jobs, by the way, for anyone that's listening, they're not on the wealth generation curve. Jobs are an essential first step. You can't bypass that. You, you need a job to learn core skills, but, but the schools are teaching kids that that is the way of life, but. I know loads of people that are middle line managers, you know, professionals, airline pilots, engineers, accountants, lawyers, whatever, and a vast majority of them hate their jobs, uh-huh. especially lawyers. Uh-huh. I know loads of lawyers where they've spent all of their younger years doing really hard at school, and they've yeah they're now a lawyer or a solicitor, um, and they've done really well. They've got a good salary, but they are trading twelve hours a day every day, and they're like, I'm fried. Yeah, absolutely. Doctors that that, that well. comes from the romance or the romanticizing of what that type of industry would be like. Yeah, exactly. And the careers advisor not saying, well, hold on a minute, you're not going to be standing up in court doing a Danny Crane or a Boston Legal. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. It's not what most lawyers do, you no. know. Some do. Endless reading, okay. basically. Yeah. In law. At the end of the day, oh, you're yeah. sitting there at a desk and you're going through contract after contract after contract. So 
um, uh, glamorize in, in in many ways, like they glamorize lots of things. Yeah. You know, I'm sure if you know how, how many people I've met over the years that I want to be a fighter pilot. Yeah. You know, do you know what's involved in being a fighter pilot, yeah, or do you yeah. or do you just want to star in Top Gun? You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so. so Sorry, I'm go- oh, we're going all over. No, no, no. This is really, this is really interesting, and and it's a language I understand. And I think this is this, these are valuable lessons for our, for our audience. And so, let's let's talk about then how, how people find opportunities. I know you got your bell curve. I know the opportunities, yeah, yeah. but there are going to be people that have have got one opportunities. We obviously, live in the Middle East in Dubai. There's a lot of people there with yeah. cash. Um, should they sit on their cash? Should they um, take a different approach? We've obviously seen the Janet Yellen just approve this this loan <laughs> uh, or increasing the debt ceiling. Which means we're going to have a further devaluation of the US dollar and every currency that's tied to it. That's already demonstrated itself uh, over time recently. Um, could the, could the US dollar have crashed? Well, I think that would have caused an even bigger problem globally than just the US dollar crashing. So that's why it didn't happen. But how how do, how do you keep going on lending and creating money? It's just like that 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 just can't yeah. go on forever. So at one point or another, like with every other country, it's happened to. Yeah it will collapse. And we've got many examples of smaller countries where that's collapsed. And whether yep. that be Argentina, Zimbabwe, whatever it might be, there's a bunch of them out there that are, are exact examples of what the outcome will be. Yep, exactly. So maybe we should just all go and buy Bitcoin. Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, God, there's loads of threads that we could go with that one. But yeah. Well, let's talk about fir- it. Okay, so with that first thing, um, if you are... If, let's say you agree with us or me and that we are moving into an economic uncertain time. Being in cash is actually a, a wise move. I, I know, like I always say, oh, being in cash, you're making 0% APR or ROI, et cetera, and you're basically bleeding against, you know, the, the tide. Against but inflation, yeah. being in cash during, you know, bloodshed, it, you that's where you, that's when you actually make your ROI, when you buy, not when you sell. It's, so, yeah, being able to pounce on stuff I think is, is yeah so I've actually been in cash for 18 months now well who, at the end of the day right now let's take a let's take a glamorous stock like Nvidia yeah okay really glamorous really, stock yeah. AI gone like crazy right now if you if you said to me Spence if you wait three months I'll be able to get you that at 50% discount hell yeah Hell yeah, yeah. Would be absolutely the answer. Yeah, but again, it's that probability and then the conviction of that probability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but if that existed, that probability and the convictions, the confidence in that. Yeah. Okay. If you bought Nvidia at fifty percent of its price right now, you'd Game be on. thinking you're getting a bargain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because of where we know that industry yeah. may be going, but that's an example. Yeah. And also, most for the I guess the everyday Joe watching this. Um, most like if there was a fifty percent fire sale at the petrol pumps or the Sainsbury's, Tesco, whatever, everyone would go, f- you know, queuing up to buy as much petrol as possible, food and stocking up, blah blah blah. But when that happens on the markets, everyone shits their pants and goes crazy. That is when you need to be buying up. Really good point. That's a really good point. Okay, there's a fight. There's a fifty percent sale at the petrol station or in um, Boxing Day sales. Yeah, Jeremy okay. cans and <laughs> yeah, everyone's going mad. Getting it. that's really interesting. However, so what we, we, we're seeing with crypto at the moment, obviously the 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 the, yeah. the legal beagles are out. Securities in uh, Exchange Commission in the states yep. are saying we're avenue boys. These are securities. Okay, <laughs> you know, and for whatever trumped up rules and and and, and structures they're accusing these guys of, yeah. I don't know exactly in fine detail, but we've seen it impact the price because everyone started selling Mm. yeah it's i mean one of the the most comical charts that i personally have i i'm a bit of a geek is that there is a chart of dollars per satoshi 
And if you look at that chart, the dollar has basically just gone diagonally down from top left to bottom right ever since Bitcoin launched and had real price discovery in 2010, basically pizza day, effectively, where uh, was it 10,000 Bitcoin bought two pizzas or something like that? That's when basically Bitcoin launched and it effectively had something like 10 cents per Bitcoin, whatever. Since that... Wasn't even that high, was it? I thought it was lower than that. Oh, it was, but I think for... Yeah, when you work out how much... If it was 10,000 yeah, Bitcoin at 10 cents, yeah. it isn't expensive <laughs> yeah. pizzas. But that chart has basically mm. been doing this, and it just shows that the dollar purchasing power is declining chronically. And and by default, Bitcoin is getting more purchasing power. Um, and, and you see that, see that with the price of Bitcoin. And it's only going to get worse for the dollar. And and we actually... The, the, the the SEC, the Federal Reserve, all these fat cat politicians, etc., they're actually going to be Bitcoin's biggest bull vector. Because what do all politicians and monetary um, people do? In times of need and craziness, they lower rates, they pump the currency supply as hard as they can, and all that's going to do is pump Bitcoin's price. Crazy. Um, so the, there's a thing called the so I have to backtrack a bit. There's probably some people watching this going, oh, Simon doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to inflation and how I said the currency supply is inflation. Uh, do you mind if I just quickly explain why Please, I say that? Because yeah. most people say, oh, no, inflation's due to the CPI basket, blah, blah, blah. The reason I say that is because there's a thing called the Cantillon effect. So if I am the Federal Reserve, I have editing privileges of the monetary database, as in I can just pluck out a trillion dollars out of my ass. That trillion dollars has never existed before. So I can go out into the open market and buy anything I want at current prices. But then over a period of time, that trillion dollars will slosh around and then price then absorbs all of that extra funny money. A bit like if we're in the desert and everyone and we had a certain amount of bottles of water that came in every year, that and let's say there's a hundred pounds in that economy bottles of water will be at a certain price. If I just came along with £10,000 and just bought up all of the water, what do you think would happen to the price of each water bottle? It would go up. So when all these central banks do various forms of injection, whether it's lending or some of the, the fancy ways, basically just expanding the currency supply, um, it is nearly always absorbed into the stock market and property. Because basically what happens is the banks, they put their mouths around that fire hydrant and then they soak it all up. And it always goes to stocks and property, which is why stocks and property supposedly always go up. It's only because of the currency supply expansion. And then because of that, it then eventually filters down into the general inflation. Now, if you look at the average growth of the UK stock market or the US stock market over the last 30 odd years, it's between 15 and 16%. Per year. Yeah, per year. If you then look at the US currency supply and the UK currency supply expansion over the same period, 15 to 16, 15 to 16% per year. Mm. That is why the global monetary hurdle is, is at least 15%. So we know they're always going to keep on pumping and pumping and pumping, which is only going to boom Bitcoin. So if you even if you have no money or whatever, going back to your the guy that said, just buy a dollar's worth, whatever. Like Bitcoin is that emergency oxygen mask that is deployed in an airline when shit hits the fan. Um, like, this is going back to Michael Saylor. He has this good thing where he's saying, um, so you have oxygen blood in your body, and the equivalent to that in the real world is currency. I can't 
can't remember um, economic energy currency and economy and basically blood is useless unless it has oxygen and you, and, and a body needs blood doesn't it but if you so what's happening is that the, the yeah imagine the economy is, is an airliner we're at 35,000 feet and we have a sudden rapid decompression so all the oxygen is sucked out and therefore we're having economic entropy and the only thing which is going to literally save you is that that ox oxygen mask which is bitcoin it's the only thing that's going to keep you breathing uh, whereas everything else is devaluing or diluting. There's, yeah, it's, it's got, got like 200% CAGA. But what about people that say, well, maybe I should just buy another property? Okay, so... Oh, if I just buy some more property, then, you know, property always in the long run goes up, so... Ah, you know. I love this topic. So, in the UK, obviously all my stats are really UK-based. Um, from 1900 to 1965, UK property prices were flat. It only started booming in the 1970s because Thatcher and Reagan said every man must own his own home policy. Mm -hmm. And they started massively expanding the currency supply to help fund and instigate the massive property boom. And it's only really since the 70s that property doubles every 10 years, but it's only due to currency supply. Now, it's all very well. And yeah, so this is why you have loads and loads of billionaires and millionaires that made all their riches in property, yeah. right? That's fine. But... The world is a completely different place now than what it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Hell, even in the, in the 2000s. So if you, let's draw a line in the sand right now, 20, halfway through 2023, that mentality of our oh, property always doubles, it'll always be fine, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think you're only safe for maybe five years, 10 years, but you then have to look at the, at the real projection of where everything is going. So we... At the highest level, human, the biggest risk humans have as a species is rapidly declining birth rates and fertility. If you look at those charts, it's pretty much a vertical line going down. So there's a massive myth that, you know, we're overpopulating the earth. You're not. You can have every human, all 8 billion people standing shoulder to shoulder and in Manhattan. That's that is literally, that's how much space humans take. Um, so I say that again. It's really profound. You could put, let's say you got rid of all the buildings in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And so, so just it's that, just land. So it's just land. Yeah. You could put 8 billion people standing shoulder to shoulder just in Manhattan. Um, again, look at things like an alien. So what I did, I've put a YouTube video about this ages ago where I was like, okay, how much land is there on earth? Okay, cool. What, however many billions of hectares, whatever. How much ha habitable land is there? You know, get rid of the mountains and deserts. How much habitable land is there? And I worked out that 8 billion people, every single person could have an acre of land each and still have oodles of space. Um, but anyway, so going back to so the, the threats of the, the, the property thing. So we have um, declining fertility rates massively ever since COVID and all that sort of stuff. Um, birth rates are falling. Um, and that's a, we're going into all of that. Uh, and not just that, we, we're having an explosion in non... Okay, this... Please don't hate me. I, for lack of a better word, non-procreating humans. Um, it's all right. This, yeah. is, this is a Dubai podcast. <laughs> we, we, we do not care and, and we don't, we don't yeah. buy into the woke, the woke nonsense. Oh, good. The woke bullshit. Yeah. Congrats. We don't... We're not, not interested. Good. So all, well, of the, all of the yeah. LBGT... Two yeah. spirit penguins or whatever they are. <laughs> I really couldn't give a shit. Well, one in five. So uh, the last study that I, I read, 21% of all Gen Z 
are LGBT, etc. Twenty-one percent. Twenty-one in five. A, a Gen, Gen Z, Z. Basically, it's ridiculous. Twenty-one percent, and that's increasing. And then when you look at a chart of, again, this is my term, non-human producing humans, as in people that are not going to pop out kids, etc. That chart is going up. So we have, from the biggest perspective, uh, a human, yeah, a human um, existential risk here. So we we are not going to get to ridiculous like fifty billion people on the planet like some companies say they are. It's not. I think that when we when you look at the the charts, we we'll probably peak at twelve billion, and then it's just down forever. Uh, Japan lost more humans than it produced for the first time in history. Mm-hmm. So it's, Japan is the first country ever to have lose humans. Mm-hmm. More, more deaths than births. Exactly. And that's only increasing. It uh, was 650,000. Yeah, was a that number, was the yeah. exact number. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I read. So so that's the biggest picture, but that's looking over many decades. So, But going back to the property thing, well, what's happening? We're, we're already seeing in Germany massive de-urbanization. So we're seeing parking lots or you know car parks being turned into parks and stuff like that there are pockets of the of europe where there is just not enough people to fill all these flats i know in the uk it's slightly different every builder i speak to says oh no there's not enough houses for humans etc but but let's just take transportation um at some point over the next couple of years tesla is going to have its own chat gpt moment where there's what roughly three million Teslas on the road there will be a, a moment where they'll, let's say in a year or two, an over-the-air update, and you'll have 3 million Teslas that will be level 5 autonomous capable, let's say. Um, now, obviously, legislation is then going to drag its knuckles along the ground, but let's just say, even with minimal progress, at some point over the next 5 to 10 years, um, we're going to have ride-hailing as probably the biggest, you know, in terms of miles driven per year, I think ride hailing is going to be very low and then it's just going to take over to the point where I think really within 15 years, it'll probably be illegal to manually drive based because when you have level five autonomy, the, you know, if you have an ecosystem where every vehicle was level five autonomous, mm-hmm. there won't be any crashes. Mm-hmm. So I think within, humans will be the problem. Exactly. And then you'll have massive taxes if you are going to manually drive or, or whatever. And so what that means... Like you, you les already, isn't it? 12, yeah, 12, 12 pound a day or whatever it is. I know, London. yeah. Um, that Part of that's a con as well. If they really cared about you, Les, they'd actually change the underground system. It's a scam. Because if you look at um, um, the air pollution in the subway compared to on the street, on the streets, like, it's great. Down in the subway all these diesel engines and whatnot, it's, it's like the most polluted uh, mm, air yeah. in Europe, I think. Yeah, yeah, London, yeah. London Underground. Yeah, I saw that too. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. It's nuts. But um, yeah, so let's say, you know, with ride hailing, with all this, the studies and metrics I've seen, is that the amount of cars will slowly start deteriorating. And then you, you won't have a need for all these massive car parks. They'll all be taken down. And so, like, yeah, going back to property, I just think with the advent of you know, the big human threat, transportation will change the the ecosystem a bit. But the biggest thing is construction 3D printing. So additive manufacturing. I mean, that's crazy. They in, There's a company in America that can print a 600 square foot house in about five hours. Print. And it's really high quality. And so if you, again, look at that projection curve with even, you know, very conservative 
innovation and, and projections, like within, say, five to 10 years, you'll be able to print a house which is better, you know, same size as, let's say, a Taylor Wimpy house, but it will last longer, it's better, it's cheap, weight like a tenth of the price, etc. So what's that going to do to house prices? I mean, okay. Yeah. So here, so let's, let's do a real example. I'm a nobody from Norwich. No one knows me, doesn't matter. I promise you, I will be getting into construction 3D printing. Now, just for shits and giggles more than anything, just as an experiment. So let's just say, let's take Norwich, okay? Um, where I'm from. Let's say there's a random, you know, street where, I know, there's 50 Taylor Wimpy houses that have been built. You know, two, four bedroom, you know, let's say it's 300 grand a house. Barrett boxes. Barrett boxes, yeah, whatever. 50 over there. Let's say I come along with me and my friends, we buy a chunk of land, and I can print 50 houses, the exact same specification, but sell them for 150k. What do you think that's going to do to house prices in the whole area, not on that street? It's going to massively depress Drop, yeah, drop just in that, that local area. Um, because they'll say, you know, I mean, I still have to buy the land. So the land prices will probably stay the same. Yes, over the, the next five to 10 years, population will be going up. That's going to fool a lot of people, but it's, it's, it's we're still on the up with population. So yeah, we'll probably sell, I still have to buy the land, but the, the, the cost to build it is going to be a tenth of the price. And I'll be able to build it in months, not years, mm -hmm. or even less than months. Less than months, yeah. So 3D construction printing is is going to be a thing. And I don't think, you know, residential property or commercial property is going to do it. The main reason I want to do it is that if you, again, another chart, if you look at refugees, that's, you know, with, especially in war-torn nations and there's more environmental issues at the moment, the amount of people that are made homeless is just skyrocketing, whether it's climate or, or whatever. I oh, don't even start on climate change. Um, but if you had the ability to, let's say, print 10,000 small homes in a, in a week, mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't that help? I mean, governments would just get, yeah. Let's say you just gave it at cost price, you know. Well, you saw what they did with that football stadium in uh, the Qatar World Cup. They yeah, exactly. brought it out of containers and then they took all of the accommodation that the people were staying in during the World Cup and sent it to Syria. Yeah. And so, you know, a quick fix, quick solution it solves a lot of problems in a, uh, cost effectively. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they took that stadium down because it was built out of containers, <laughs> which I thought was a brilliant idea. Yeah. You know, why is Same. that not? Why is that a bad idea? So, yeah, yeah so we 3D print our properties. Much cheaper than the current properties. A tenth of the price. With potentially better build construction project, better materials, longer lasting, and less human error because they're being built by the computer. Yeah. How long I, do those Taylor Wimpy houses last? Like before there's mass errors? Like well, it's, inter well, it's, it's interesting you say this because I've been, I've been in Dubai for 18 years. Yeah. Oh, a, wow. a, house in a, a house in Dubai after 18 years needs a full renovation. That's not bad, actually. Compared no. to some of the UK. So houses. a house in the no no no, a house in Dubai after eighteen years is knackered. Yeah, it's the equivalent of a hundred year old house here. Oh, I see. And that's because okay. that's because the the product hasn't been built very well. So they brought cheap labour in yeah, from yeah. overseas. They bring them in. One day the guy's a bricklayer. Next day he's an electrician. Next yeah, day he's yeah. a plumber. So you know, <laughs> Fair you're not getting high quality work being yeah. done. So people are having to renovate their houses top to bottom after that period yeah. of time. So you bring in three D printing. Okay, into Dubai, where there's a lot of people moving because taxes are more um, uh, favorable. Yep. Um, I used to say it was tax free, but it's not anymore. <laughs> it's now 9% corporation tax. Wow. But, but then you essentially 
you impact dramatically that market. Now, can the government mm. control that in some way and say, guys, yeah, guys, guys, you can't sell them at that price. I know it's only costing you this much, but you're, yeah. you're fucking the market up. Governments have always been known to protect pri- private industries. Mm. In, in certain, Yeah, so they'll probably delay it or... A bit like when level five autonomy comes around for driving, mm-hmm. just watch governments drag their knuckles and go, no, no, no. It's a bit like seatbelts. Mm-hmm. How many years were seatbelts proven to save lives before they mandated it? Mm-hmm. 20 years? Mm-hmm. But things are moving a lot faster. I think they'll. this will be a lot faster because they'll then be negligent from a legal and insurance purpose. Mm-hmm. That, you know, but every day you delay level five autonomy on UK roads, X amount of people are dying and then there'll be pressure that way. Okay, let's talk about Bitcoin. Love it. You, you, the, the, your ideas, your concepts, everything that you've spoken about so far, the, the, clearly the, the, the learnings that you've been doing uh, are really valuable for everybody that's listening today. Um, I can cool. see you're a guy that likes, likes to work with charts. Your hands all over the place. You're just like, no, I <laughs> want to point at that. Oh, yeah, you, I, yeah. If I'd have known, I'd have brought a flip chart for you. <laughs> yeah. you know, I get that. I really get yeah. that. It's how, it's how I learn too. So, Let's 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 talk about why we should own Bitcoin. Why everybody should own Bitcoin, and what percentage of their portfolio should be Bitcoin, and why? Uh, so everyone should own at least one. You know, some Bitcoin, at least a dollar. It, well, this is where I. A lot of people then disagree with me. I personally think you should put the majority of your wealth in Bitcoin. So this is where I sound a bit crazy. Majority. Yeah. Okay. So why? Obviously, you have to do your budgeting so you know, you know, what your outgoings are for your life or business, etc. So for me personally, it's a bit weird because I've been in cash for 18 months now because of the crash. I predicted the 22 boom bear market. So I have been in cash. I'm just waiting to buy. But let's just say it's a normal. What's the price market. today? Uh do you know? No. Hold on, let's have a look at crypto prices today. 28K, 20, uh, 27. Because it went down, didn't it? Yeah, I think it's about 27. Uh, uh, I'm actually shorting Bitcoin right now. Uh, are one you? Second. Okay, so it's $26,437. Nice. ETH is at $1,800. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So I the, the way I orchestrate my life is that make sure you have your income stream so that you can pay your bills etc pay your staff all that sort of stuff but i personally will have 90 percent of my capital in crypto 90 percent of your yeah at least and this is why whoa whoa. uh, yeah whoa 90 percent of what my capital my surplus it's 90 percent of my surplus capital surplus cash in crypto. Crypto or Bitcoin? Huh, it depends on where you are in the market. So I have these seesaws. So obviously my long-term gain is to goal, sorry, is to accumulate as many Satoshis as possible. Yeah. But there are better, smarter ways to do that than just blindly buy Bitcoin. So to the average person, yeah, just buy Bitcoin, sit on it for five, ten years, and you'll pat yourself on the back. And your grandkids will thank you for that. So, so hold on a minute. So, so if, if I buy Bitcoin at $26,000 today, yeah. okay, and every month I get my salary, I buy Bitcoin. Yep. And just don't look at it. Leave it for 10 years. For the average Joe, that is, yeah, do that. That's, that's the, the best, best savings plan. That's the strategy. Plan. Yeah. Best savings plan. That, that's the best savings plan or strategy that the average Joe could do. Just 
buy Bitcoin, sit on it for 5, 10, 15 years, and yeah, your grandkids will thank you. But um, what if I don't care about my grandkids, I care about my retirement? Oh yeah, you'll thank yourself because okay. all of a sudden, yeah, you know, when the when the government printing press goes, brrr, you know, Bitcoin, I'm, I won't be surprised to see $1 million or even $10 million Bitcoin. Easy. But obviously, what will a million dollars buy you when that happens? Obviously, everything will go up in price if they start printing like like nuts. But yeah, I see $10 million Bitcoin, no problem at all. Because um, all the central banks will propel that. But for someone that wants to be a bit smarter with their acquisition of Satoshis, there are better ways. So for example, pound cost averaging or dollar cost averaging. Unit cost averaging. Yeah, <laughs> unit cost averaging <laughs> is if you just blindly do it at all times, it's probably the worst thing you can do. Because what you're going to be doing is, yes, you'll be accumulating all the way up during the bull market and all the way during the bear market, but you will expose your capital to vast amounts of time where you're massively underwater. Um, now, yeah, over a 20-year period, it's fine because you'll be like, oh, yeah, I bought all that up here, all the, all the down here. But in the medium time frame, it doesn't take, I mean, it takes a little bit of learning to know what phase of the cycle we're in. Are we in a bull market? Because Bitcoin moves in four-year cycles. It goes up for a, a year and a bit, down for a year and a bit, consolidates sideways choppiness for a year and a bit. And so it, when we're in a raging bull market, you should stop pound cost averaging. You should stop. And in fact, you should then enter a profit-taking phase of your portfolio. When we're in a raging bear market, and it is obvious, I mean, you don't need much hindsight. You can have like three months hindsight, and then you'll quickly see, based on a load of easy metrics, that, oh, shit, this is a bear market. It's probably going to last a year or so. Then you just wait. Then you're saying cash. And then when you... Yeah, enter... well, hold on. When you're in a bear market, though, if you take unit cost averaging, the actual, the chart, the best chart on a unit cost averaging mm -hmm. chart is the chart that goes down and then comes back up if you're yeah, unit cost averaging. But not if you're a sidestepper. So if you... And I've done loads of maths on this and loads of videos. Basically... Sidestepper. Yeah. So, so what I, I call it sidestepping. So if you took someone that's going to go, right, we're a bear market. I'm just going to buy every month regardless. Blah, 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 blah. And then have someone else that is just, you don't even need to learn that much extra, just to basically go, right, most, let's say most Bitcoin crashes will crash at least 70% from all time high, from that local high. Bitcoin will, in a, in a crash, it's done more, but let's say you, you're, pessim, you're conservative and go, right, we're most likely going to have a 70% crash or hell, 60%, whatever it is. If you're only like 30% down, then, okay, it's highly likely there's, there's more to come. So when Bitcoin gets to say, um, you know, 50, 60% down, then you can start averaging in. But what I prefer to do, so um, so going back to sidestepping, is let's say you have an amount of crypto and you think there's a high probability, a very high probability of falling. You sell, get into cash, you wait till it falls, then you go back in. You've got more units then. Then you sit in. And then if you think there, there are other signals that you're about to fall again, go into cash, wait till it drops a bit, then go back in. So sidestepping, if you don't want to, let's say, time the market um, in, a, in a broader sense, you can sidestep your way down. So from a dollar perspective, your portfolio will look like a bag of balls because you're just taking mini loss, mini loss, mini loss. But every time you're buying back in, you're getting way more units. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and those extra units are actually do really well, especially if you have 
something which you can stake. Well, hold on a minute. Yeah. <clears throat> let's let's respect that the average Joe is probably the majority of listeners. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of course, you, you're going to have the, the, that percentage that are like-minded. Yeah. Then you're going to have the big percentage that the average Joe's. Yeah. They're looking at, at Bitcoin right now, yeah. and they're like, should I buy this bloody Bitcoin? And yes. if I buy it, how much should I buy and how often should I buy? And so Got your it. first answer is actually the answer. Take a percentage of your salary every month, buy it every month, yep. don't look at it, come back to it in 10 years. Yes. I, yeah. right. For most people, just do that. Okay. So... Then you've got the people saying, well, should I be buying some Ethereum as well, some Solana, some XRP? Should I be buying a little bit of this and a little bit of that? And, you know, my mate works for this company yeah, and yeah. he's told me <laughs> that this one's a dead cert to yeah, the moon yeah, yeah. and whatever it might be. All yeah? Those, yeah. What should people be doing? Should they just be buying Bitcoin or, or should they be considering others as well? What you buy and how much you buy should be directly proportional to the amount of uh, knowledge you have acquired in that in okay that but sector. people have got no knowledge in bitcoin then and we're just telling buy them. bitcoin don't but no no they have no knowledge in bitcoin very limited knowledge. well the answer is you, you've got to spend at least 10 hours 10 hours of focused energy in learning it so uh, in my in my personal view there is no excuse for laziness in terms of learning something new love this no excuse there is no excuse no you are fully accountable for your life and that includes your money and your 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 family's wealth it's your your freaking responsibility. If you're going to be thumb and bum, mind and neutral, and do zero jack shit knowledge, like knowledge acquisition in the in the field of money, you sort of are bringing destitution upon yourself in the future. Mm. So you're you're always living. You're 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 feeling the results of actions you did five years ago or ten years ago. Like right now, I'm eating a party bag size of crisps every night at midnight. Not good for my health. I'm fine for the moment, but I know in five years' time, my bu- my belly is just going to do this. <laughs> mm. I'm aware of that. I'm choosing to ignore it for the moment. But most people do that for in money-related things. So if, and we're living in the time of Google and YouTube, we have all of humanity's knowledge that's ever been created well, there you, for free, pretty if much. If you want to learn something in, the, in, in you know, people go, it's really confusing, all you have to do is go to ChatGPT yeah, and say, Bard. can you, or Bard, <laughs> and can you please explain to me in Arnold Schwarzenegger's tongue or whoever it yeah, might be exactly. that you want, okay, how Bitcoin works. Yeah. And and you'll get something, you know, in in an uh, how from an Essex man's point of view, yeah. you know, whatever yeah, it is, exactly. a, a bricklayer's perspective, how yeah. you know, whatever. I'm, Explain it now in a five-year-old language. Oh, five I still don't understand yeah. three-year-old language. Yeah. <laughs> you have zero excuses. So yeah, going back to what I said, the amount of money you put into it and how often you buy into it and what you buy should be should be proportional to the amount of knowledge you have in in it. So don't just randomly go and buy ETH or Solana or whatever just because, oh, just because. That, that's just mental laziness. Mm. Um, you're gonna, and, and also, I'm not a fan of um, diversification. So this is where most people, especially, I, this is where I think financial advisors con the entire world, in my opinion, because they're, they're talking to normal people and go, oh, yeah, you just got to spread your baskets everywhere spread your eggs everywhere into everything blah 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 well by doing that you are you are being lazy with your knowledge and money because you're then by default exposing your money into things which will go down or and yet and some that may go up you're never going to breach the 15 percent annual hurdle ever no one ever got rich in a time efficient manner by spreading 
No one. If you look at every billionaire on the planet, any hell millionaire, they no one ever got that from a job in a say a ten year period. I mean, yeah, you can have the CEO of a big bank, but how long do they take to get there? Mm-hmm. Twenty years working up the ladder. That's not a time efficient mm-hmm. manner. So. If you're looking at wealth generation as an alien, remember, I look at everything like a freaking alien. I don't care what society thinks. What is the most efficient and logical process? Well, if you're any, if you're under the age of 60 years old right now watching this, you can turn your life around in five years at least, 10 years even. I mean, if you're, if you're say, 60 years old, you've got another 30, 40 years ahead of you. So spending five years, I mean, you don't even have to get to crazy wealth. You can... If you've got a low salary and let's say you just want five grand a month income, you could do that in five years easy. You don't have to do the crazy stuff that you or I or other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh, I'm going off on one here. Oh, yeah. Uh, diversification. Yeah. You only get wealthy when you focus your time and money into a specific pot. So the way I look at things is that I have my immediate sphere of intense knowledge and focus right here. But also in investing, you need to know a little bit about a lot. So you have this wide peripheral vision, okay? So for me, crypto is my, I I watch it like a Hawkeye. It's my job to know as much as I can about crypto. But I look at everything from tech, AI, 3D construction printing, CRISPR, what billionaires are doing, what the governments are doing, what is um, um, stakeholder capitalism, which is a big thing the WEF is trying to push out. So if there is a bullet or an arrow coming to your personal basket, you should be able to pivot long before it hits you. So can I give you a kooky real life? Ex- um, Let's finish on that. So oh, I have followed the World Economic Forum for a long time, mainly Klaus Schwab. And I used to like him five, six years ago. And I've completely changed my view on him and that organization. And one of the things I found very early on is that everything that they pontificate on happens. And I used to think, wow, they're really good at reading the the future. I no longer think that. I think they have more of a hand in that future. And one of the things that Schwab and the WEF were going batshit nuts on is that, you know, in the in the near future, we will have a pandemic, 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 blah, blah, blah. So I'm probably killing YouTube views now for <laughs> saying those words. Um, and, and that, you know, he was, he was basically talking about lockdowns and everything five years ago. And then it got stronger and stronger up into 2019. And then I realized, wait a minute, this was back in 2015, 16. I was like, if I just have one business and there is, you know, world pandemic, uh, you know, pandemonium, let's say, I'm at risk here. I've got real counterparty risk that some bullet could take me out and then I've got nothing. So one of the reasons I had lots of different businesses in different sectors is, I guess, diversification. Whoops. (laughs) 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 But I didn't know what was coming. And then 2018, 2019, he got really strong. And then Bill Gates started talking about it. And I was like, something's coming down the pipeline here. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'm just going to make sure that I have enough different types of income streams. So, so touch wood. Oh, uh, it's a bit cringy to say this. 2020, 2021 was that they were very good years for me, uh, mainly because I had a bunch of businesses that absolutely died. So my retail-based businesses just went to tits up, but I had a bunch of other businesses that did really well. So my personal income wasn't attacked, so to speak. 
But I did that. I owned that because I set myself up in position to, to do that. So now, looking forward, what are we seeing? We are seeing, again, all of these threats. We've got stakeholder capitalism coming in that the WEF is trying to force into us. That's going to be basically run by the whole new religion of ESG, environmental social governance. Um, guess who owned and created that ESG movement? BlackRock. Um, and so you then have to put your a different set of sunglasses on and go, right, what is the world going to look like in five to 10 years time? It's all going to be ESG up the yin yang. We've got, you know, 15 minute cities and all the bits and bobs coming in down the line. The WEF and Schwab are now constantly talking about a, um, what they're, they're calling a virus or um, a digital uh, cyber COVID, I think is the way he calls it. He said at some point there's going to be a massive um, cyber attack that will affect all computers. Energy grids will go down, transportation systems go down, everything goes down, and that shits me up. So I think sometimes it does pay to be paranoid and then be a bit like your own Noah and build your ark. And so for me, I'm now thinking, shit, all my businesses are affected by digital stuff. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I want to do now is buy um, and set up big wholesale food uh, I, I basically, I want to buy a big wholesale food company and just fill it with non-perishable food. So at best, it's just an insurance policy. So if all my digital businesses go bust or whatever during the cyber pandemic or whatever, at least I've got this, this thing where I've got food for my family and then I can sell, I can actually then get an income because you can stockpile rice and pasta relatively cheap now. But I mean, if the logistics network go, grinds to halt for even a day or two or a week all shit breaks loose mm, it does indeed. i mean sainsbury's has what less than a week's worth of supply mm. of food and tesco the average household has less than three days worth of food typically mm. um, the consumption is, is is large i invest in smart farming and one of oh, the, nice one of those uh the company that have got the largest um strawberry farm in the uk wow. they produce eight tons a week and just in London, tes Tesco's just in London need 80 tonnes a week Jesus. of strawberries. <laughs> and these strawberries are coming out of, of, of the facility straight the same day yeah. in, into the store. And um, that's two Tesco stores. That's insane, isn't it? <laughs> but, um, wow. but yeah, going back to your question before I ramble on any longer. Yeah, buy Bitcoin. And I guess, yeah, ETH. I'm very bullish on ETH. I'm sh bearish in the short term. Guess which crypto the World Economic Forum loves? ETH. It loves ETH. It, it absolutely loves it. So there are a lot of powerful people that are that love ETH. So you just, obviously they're going to help propel it because they're, they're saying it's the it's the most eco friendly crypto on the planet, not dirty Bitcoin, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, ETH is going to be a good long term bet. Um, and I'm not shilling. I, I'm not paid at all. But one of the projects which I've, I'm really excited about is a is, is a project called Casper. Now, we this is what June 2023 we're recording this. What is it? The 8th of June, 6th of June. Sorry, it's the 8th of June right now. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> my, my watch is a bit back to front. Um, so 8th of June, right? We have this. We have all sorts of crypto risk right now. So we have the SEC that's got this massive regulatory anvil that has been threatening the crypto industry for a year now. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we will regulate the industry, but 
we won't give you any guidelines whatsoever. They're suing Coinbase, Binance. Obviously, that was all instigated by FTX going bust and all that sort of stuff, which was amazing. Um, and so they're threatening the whole industry. So any crypto which fails the how, uh, passes the Howey test, as in will then be deemed a security, is going to get absolutely clobbered, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of smaller uh, smaller cap cryptos, are, I think, are going to go bust. Um, the blue chip cryptos like Solana and all the other, let's say the top 20 or top 50, I think they'll get the treatment that the banks do. They'll be like, right, you're a security, slap on the wrist, pay this fine and reform your systems so you're compliant. Mm -hmm. They will survive because they got a nice war chest of cash, but lots will die. Um, the only crypto they've said is not a security is Bitcoin. But why? Then you have to look at the reasons why Bitcoin is not a security. And then when you look at this, this project called Casper, K-A-S-P-A, -A, um, and actually, um, clarification, I own no Casper right now because I'm sidestepping it. I think it's got a lot more falling to come, and then I'm going to pounce like heavy on it. Um, it has no pre-mine, no pre-sale, no VCs. Um, it's proof of stake, a uh, proof of work, sorry. It's the fastest proof of work on the planet. It's not even a blockchain, it's a block DAG. Uh, which a DAG is a decentralized cyclic graph. Um, but long story short, it is, it's the first crypto that's fully solved the trilemma issue. Are you familiar with the trilemma? Mm -hmm. So for those not, not familiar, with crypto, there's these three points which everyone's trying to uh, solve, which is scalability, decentralization, and security. So since, you know, or basically forever, you can solve two of them, but not three. So you're either scalable and very secure, but you're not decentralized or vice versa. Um, and same with Bitcoin. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's very secure. It's decentralized, but it's not that scalable. Or it, it is, but it's slow, chunky, it's expensive, all that sort of stuff. So what's happening is that you're getting every, because crypto only, most crypto solve two of them, that to, to fix the third thing, you need layer twos. So that's why with Bitcoin, it's slow, chunky, and expensive. So you need a layer two like the Lightning Network uh -huh. to make it fast, etc. With Ethereum, it has all its own problems. So that's why you have Polygon and or an Arbitrum one and all that to you know make things better. But um, Casper is the only layer one which solves the trilemma. Mm -hmm. It's fast. It, yeah, it is ridiculous. I'll do some research on that. Yeah, and I'm being paid by no one to say that. <laughs> it's okay. But, it's not financial advice. No, no, it's not. Like. But from a tech perspective, it's like every other crypto is a steam-driven car. And this is now a Tesla that's just rocked up. Got it. Sam, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. It's been great fun talking to you. Obviously, there's <laughs> lots of this language we both share and lots of wisdom that you shared with everybody yeah. today. So thanks for joining us. Sorry for rambling. <laughs> <laughs>